One of the Bible's most consistent metaphors to describe humans is sheep. And that's not really a compliment. Um, Mussolini said at the beginning of World War II that it would be better to live one day as a lion than a hundred years as a sheep. And then President Trump, when he was running for president in 2016, quoted Mussolini in that, which is interesting on its own. Um, But um, that's the idea. It's better to be a lion than a sheep. It's better to be a lion for a day than a sheep for a hundred years. And yet the Bible does not call us lions. It calls us sheep. And we're a lot like sheep in a number of ways. Um, Sheep have no defense mechanism. So there are studies done on this. They seriously just can't protect themselves. We're similar to that. Um, Now, we have lots of different uh, defense mechanisms that we can put up, and certainly we can protect ourselves from certain danger. But there are so many things in life that we can't control, like a health crisis that might arise, or a natural disaster, or uh, the economy. So many of those things, no matter, even if you made all the right decisions, you can't protect yourself from what might happen. In that sense, we're like sheep. We're also like sheep in the, the fact that we stress when we're left alone. Um, there's one study where they just monitor what happens when a sheep is left in a field all by himself um, or herself, and they seriously just freak out. Um, and we're maybe not quite like that, but uh, we need friendships as well. Um, in the story Into the Wild, um, the guy who uh, he was grew up in Atlanta. He was a college student. Then he went, and he just wanted to be out in the wilderness by himself. Um, Before he died, he wrote in the margin of this book he was reading, happiness only real when shared. Happiness is only real when shared. And that's since we're like sheep. We need community. We we don't need to be lonely. Um, We also have bad, sheep have bad depth perception. They're very nearsighted. And so they will just walk off a cliff because they can't tell that there's something about to change, and so they just do that. And um, that is sad. But we're a lot like that. Um, we are. We, uh, we can't, we're not always positioned in the moment to see the severity of a decision that we might make. We're not always able to see in the moment um, where a path might take us, because we are like sheep. We're kind of nearsighted. Um, and we are, sheep are natural followers, and we are natural followers too. Now, some of us are more followers than others. Some of us have more uh, independence than others. Some of us are more leadership-oriented than others. But all of us are influenced by voices. And the number one thing that sheep have going for them is they can memorize voices and faces. And we do that too. We latch on to certain voices and certain faces that, that give us encouragement, that give us strength, that give us stability. That's what sheep do too. So the Bible says we're like sheep. And that's not really a compliment. And do you know what sheep need? Sheep need a shepherd. That's what sheep need. And God, because he cares for us and he knows we're like sheep, is committed to giving us a shepherd. We need, shepherd because, we need a shepherd because like sheep, we find ourselves in situations where we don't always know what to do. And we're not wise enough on our own to make the right decision. I think about my mom whenever uh, my grandmother had Alzheimer's And basically the doctor was going over the options with her. You can put her in this assisted living facility. You can put her in a nursing home. You can take care of her yourself. But those are basically your options. And she was completely overwhelmed. She didn't know what to do. She was like a sheep. She needed somebody to give her some guidance. There's also times where we're like that when we have a job transition. 
you're not sure what to do professionally, you've got some different options before you and you need somebody to help you navigate that. We have this relationally. Certainly you have this, I would imagine, as parents (laughs) where you don't know what to do and you need a shepherd. You need somebody who's smarter than you, who's wiser than you, who's stronger than you to be able to speak into you. And because God loves us, he wants to be a shepherd for us. And so because of what Jesus has done for us, we have the ability to have direct access to God as our shepherd. Jesus called himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And so what God has done is brought us into his fold so that he can be our shepherd. He's done that through Jesus. But one of the things that God has also done, and this is, can seem a little self-serving for me to talk about it as the pastor of the church, um, but one of the things that God has also done is given human shepherds to his people. And in the Bible, we call those elders. They're people who are supposed to be like shepherds to a church. They're supposed to be able to be wise counsel. They're supposed to be able to help you feel encouraged. They're supposed to help you um, feel cared for when you're going through something difficult. They're supposed to do what a shepherd would do for sheep. And because God loves us and because he wants us to be part of his flock, he's given some human shepherds, some human elders to care for us. And so this morning, as we talk about elders in 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Timothy 5, um, I hope that you know that this isn't just an academic study about, you know, these random people in the Bible that are mentioned a couple times. Instead, they're actually God's gift to you. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they are always a good gift. Sometimes they mess up because they're people and we'll see that they are completely capable of doing that. But God has still designed for you to have some people who can be like sheep for you. And so that's what we're going to talk about. So this morning, there are basically four questions we're going to try to answer. The first is, what are elders? What are elders? Second, what do elders do? Third, how are elders chosen? And fourth, how should elders be treated? So first, what are elders? What are elders? Well, there's a lot of different things that the word elder might do to your mind. Um, I was in Caldi's recently um, over on, don't remember which Caldi's location and that is, but it was over there. And um, they, uh, I was reading this book called Elders and Leaders. And this woman from India saw that I was reading the book and she was very curious. And she's um, getting her PhD right now at, I think, Wash U. And so she was like, can I talk to you about elders. Because in her context, elders are people who are basically in charge of the caste system and in charge of society, and they suppress people. And they limit the opportunities that everybody else um, in a different class would have. And so she, when she saw the word elder, there was a whole set of cultural assumptions that was attached to it. Um, The word elder also has certain connotations uh, for me. Uh, When I hear the word elder, Um, I think of a cult immediately, Um, like, you know, some weird Puritan village somewhere that's like, you know, still making, you know, everybody basically stay in the, you know, little society and not escape so that they can control everything. That's what I think of. Um, I don't know what you think of. The other thing that maybe if you've been around church at all that you think about when you think of elders, depending on the kind of church that you've been in, is elders are the people that you hear about when something bad happened. 
So like, you know, the pastor screwed up, made a mistake. He's not going to be able to be the pastor anymore. Then like the elders are on stage and you're like, whoa, this Sunday is different. Um, Or, you know, some really, you know, horrible thing has happened in the church and there's a letter from the elders that goes out. And other than that, like you never heard of them. Um, Maybe that's what you think of. I don't, I don't know what you think of. But it's possible that the word elder can have lots of different connotations. Maybe you just think of an old person. Um, So this morning, I just want to talk quickly about what are elders when the Bible talks about elders. And there are three different words that the Bible uses to refer to this group. Um, Elders, overseers, and pastors. Those three words are synonymous. Elders, overseers, and pastors. Uh, Let me show you just a few verses to where we uh, know that they're synonymous. Acts chapter 20, verse 17 This is talking about Paul, and it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. So Paul's going to have this meeting with the elders. And then in that meeting, he starts talking to them, and here's what he says in Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd, that's the word for pastor, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So here in this little verse, you've got elders mentioned, then you've got overseers, and then you've got this idea of a flock or being shepherded or pastored. First um, Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. It's Peter writing, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed. And then watch this. Shepherd, the word pastor, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly. Titus chapter 5, Titus chapter 1, I'm sorry, verse 5. Paul writing, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. And then talking to those about those elders, he says, verse 7, as an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless. So elder, overseer, pastor, those words can be used synonymously. And in fact, in these examples, they are. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he talks about overseers. Then he gets to chapter 5, verse 17, he talks about elders. So elders, overseers, they're the same. The reason that that I think both terms are used is because elders is more of a Jewish word. It would have resonated with Jewish audience. And the word overseer is a Greek word, and it would have resonated with a Greek audience. And then the word pastor is just a picture that captures what this person is supposed to do, what an elder and overseer does. A pastor shepherds people. So that's what an elder is. An elder is just simply one of two leadership offices or leadership positions in the church. That's what an elder is. The other one is deacon, and we'll talk about deacons next week. So that's what an elder is. It's just one of the two leadership positions in the church. It's synonymous with overseer, synonymous with pastor. The other thing to know is that whenever elders are talked about, they're always talked about in, with multiple elders. We call that a plurality of, of elders. So the idea is that leading the church is supposed to be a group of people, a group of these pastors or overseers. So why do we have at MidCities and why do most churches have a lead pastor? or a teaching pastor, or a senior pastor, or even just a pastor? Why do we have that position? Well, there's certainly not a biblical mandate for it. There's not like a verse that says every church has to have one person who's the pastor. In fact, what the New Testament teaches is that there needs to be multiple pastors, multiple elders, multiple overseers in the church. Um, 
And yet, there's also a biblical pattern that there is point leadership. So, in the Old Testament, there are elders, but then Moses is the point leader. In the book of Joshua, there are elders, but Joshua is the point leader. In the book of Judges, there are elders, but then there's a judge who's the point leader. This is true throughout the Old Testament. Then you get to the New Testament, and you have elders, and then Peter is writing to the elders as um, a director of elders, so to speak, in the book of First Peter. Um, then you also have people like Timothy and Titus, who are appointing elders, and they're ruling with elders, they're leading with elders, but there's still a person who is leading. Um, can this go wrong? Yes. Is it unwise for a church to have one elder, pastor, teacher um, for an extended period of time? Yes, that would be an unwise thing. So do we need to get some elders here? Yes, we do. That's one of the reasons that I think First Timothy is a helpful book for us to go through, um, because as long as one person is in charge, so to speak, poor decisions are made. <laughs> uh, Proverbs 15.22 says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. So not only does the New Testament teach that there should be a plurality of elders, but it's also just a wise thing to do. And so absolutely, that's something that we um, need to do. So who are elders? What are elders? Well, they're shepherds, overseers. They are the leaders of a church. So what do elders do? That's the second question. What do elders do? What's their job? four things I want to highlight. They protect the church, they feed the church, they lead the church, and they love the church. They protect the church, they feed the church, they lead the church, and they love the church. So let's talk about each one of these. First, they protect the church. What does that mean? Well, the church is a target. I don't know if you know that, but the church is a target of the enemy. And if, you know, if you're um, new to Christianity, that sounds weird, okay? We're talking about elders, and that already felt like a cult. And now we're talking about this invisible spiritual enemy who wants to hurt us. We, it's weird, all right? Um, and we embrace that. Christianity is weird. So we're a target. And the reason that we're a target is because there is an enemy. And the enemy's strategy from the very beginning of the Bible and the very beginning of time and throughout all of time is to lie. It's to convince you of things that are not true. That is the strategy of the enemy. In the garden, he lied to Eve, and he's still lying today. That's why the fact that God is light and God is truth is something that we need to champion, because the enemy's strategy is to lie. And so the elders, one of their jobs is to protect the church from lies. Listen to what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And here's why this is such a big deal. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. So the elders are supposed to protect the church from lies that could even rise up within the church. And interestingly, in Acts 20, Paul is talking to the Ephesian leaders, and that's who we're writing to in 1 Timothy. 
Timothy is in Ephesus. And Paul predicted that there would be some people who would start teaching false things. And now here's Timothy having to clean up the mess. So elders protect the church from false teaching, from false doctrine. They also feed the church. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. From the very beginning, the church has been... Oh no, oh no, don't go down. I told you we're a target. Also, we just have a bad microphone. So sometimes you just... uh, Supernatural, sometimes it's just natural. Um, The... What was I saying? Feed the church. Oh yeah, in Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. From the very beginning, Christianity has been a learning community. The church is a learning community. We're not afraid of you having knowledge. In fact, it's the opposite. It's not like the elders are supposed to protect the knowledge and everybody else is supposed to stay in the dark. So we're the only ones who study the Bible around here and you guys are supposed to just listen to what we say. That's not the goal. The goal is to be a learning community. And so elders are supposed to feed the church. That means they're supposed to teach the Bible. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to be judged, who is going to judge the living and the dead. And because of his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Here's why. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have such an, they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. So Paul's writing to Timothy as this pastor and he's saying, your job is to preach the word, teach the word. Why? Because there are going to be false teachers who arise. So not only do you defend in a, you know, defensive posture, but you also take an offensive posture and you teach, you feed the flock. Throughout the New Testament, food is described as teaching, 1 Corinthians 3.2, Hebrews 5.11-14, 1 Peter 2.2. So here's the reality. The most important thing that I can do as the pastor of this church is teach the Bible. It's the most important thing I can do. Now, the reason for that is not because that's a way for me to feel good about myself and my degree, you know? The reason for that is because of what we teach. If the church becomes a place where the pastor is just sharing from his own wisdom and his own experience, then there's not a lot of, you know, eternal value in listening to that. Now, conceivably, there could be people who have really wise things to say, but that's not distinctly what the church is supposed to be about. It's just wisdom from the guy up front. Instead, the church is supposed to be about the Word of God. My role as a teacher here is not to let you know all the things that I know. My role as a teacher here is to be a messenger, to just say what's already been said and say it hopefully in a way that's clear, in a way that's practical so you know what to do with it, and in a way that points you back to Jesus. The reason for that is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture, he's referring to the Old Testament, But in just a minute, he's going to quote from the Gospel of Luke. So that's going to be interesting. We'll talk about that in a second. But all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the reason that 
preaching is so important, that teaching is so important, is because the Word of God is powerful. Just last night, I was reading this um, book called Between Two Worlds by John Stott. He's a British theologian, was. And um, he talks in the beginning of the book about the conviction that a pastor has to have. And he says, until you recognize as a pastor that the Word of God is powerful, that it has power, that you're not ready to preach, because you'll be dependent on your own wisdom, your own insight, your own clever words. But once you begin to recognize that the Bible has power, then you're ready. So they feed the church. They also lead the church. They lead the church by setting an example, 1 Timothy 4.12. They lead the church by directing some of the ministry efforts. 1 Timothy 5 is about that. They also lead the church by ensuring that the church operates according to wise financial and legal practices. If you're going to have a church in the United States, you've got to file with the uh, Secretary of State. So if we're going to do that, then we need to make sure we are legal in the way that we do it. And it's the elders' responsibility to do that. We get that from the fact that they're supposed to have, they're supposed to be well thought of by outsiders. So there's a responsibility on the elders to lead in that way. Elders are also supposed to love the church. Because we're sheep, we have wounds and we have struggles. We have things that we go through that are not easy. The role of the elders is to be there to care. Now, does that mean that the elders are the only ones who do that? No. But the elders do it, first of all, but they also ensure that people are taken care of. So it's not that they always have to be physically the ones doing the caring, doing the loving, but they ensure that that will take place. So that's what elders do. They protect, they feed, they lead, and they love. So, third question. How are elders chosen? How do you become an elder? Well, first, it says in verse 22, chapter 5, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. That means it needs to be a slow process. It doesn't just like, oh, you seem good, you're an elder. But instead, you are methodical, you're patient, you're careful. So, three criteria for being an elder. First, an elder is called by God. An elder is called by God. Acts 20, 28, we've looked at this verse a lot. It says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit, notice this, the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. So, how did they become overseers? The Holy Spirit appointed them. Now, that happened through people, that happened through their own desire. We'll see that in just a second. But there's also a supernatural, spiritual thing happening that a person is called by God to the office, the position, but also the work. And that's important because that means that God is actively caring for his church by raising up people to do this. So they're called by God, first of all. Second, they have a desire to the office and the work. 1 Timothy 3, 1 says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The desire is for the position and the work. 
the position and the work. The reason that's important is some people desire the position without the work. They just want to be, you know, in charge. There are three on the Enneagram and it makes them feel good to just have a position, you know? And so they just, I'm, I'm an elder, but they don't want to work. The desire is for the office and the work. Oh no, Lord, please. We've made it so far. All right. Um, they desire it. And third, they are recognized by the church as being qualified for the office and the work. They're recognized by the church as being qualified. Now, these can happen in any order. For me, I was in seventh grade. I was at this weird Bible camp thing, and I was taking a shower, and I was super nervous, like in the pit of my stomach. And I was like, what in the world? Why am I so nervous? And I was like, have I done something bad? Like, have I sinned? Started thinking, no, nothing I can think of, nothing, you know, out of the usual. Um, what's going on? And so I just started praying, God, what is it that, why am I feeling this way? And I had this really weird subjective feeling that maybe I'm supposed to like be a missionary or something. As soon as I had that thought, it was like, oh, that seems kind of right. But for a long time, I didn't want to do that. So I was in seventh grade. Then in ninth grade, all of a sudden, I started to want to. I started leading this little Bible study at school. I kind of liked preparing for it. And suddenly I found myself wanting to do it. I started to aspire to the office and the work. I kind of liked it. And then when I was in my junior year of high school, my senior year of high school, some people started to recognize, hey, this might be something that you would be good at. Have you ever thought about doing this? And so I had all three of those experiences. They came at different times. That was the order they came for me is God, myself, others, but it can happen in any order. For Paul, happening in basically the same order. He was on the road to Damascus. He had a much more supernatural experience than I had in the shower. And he all of a sudden, he's got a new path for his life. And then he gets to the end of the city. He starts teaching people. They did not recognize him as an authority at the time. In fact, they were scared of him um, uh, because he had been trying to kill them. And so then he starts teaching, though, because he desires this thing. And then eventually people are like, yeah, he's pretty good. And he wrote the New Testament. Um, then uh, Timothy, though, totally different order. For Timothy, he was recognized by people first. Before he had some kind of supernatural experience with God or before he, um, you know, wanted to be in ministry, he had people saying, hey, have you thought about this? He was recognized by the church as somebody who would be good for it. Then he started to desire it. And then he was prayed over, and God supernaturally equipped him for the work. It's kind of an interesting progression. So my point is, none of these things have to happen in any particular order, but those are the three elements. God calls you, and that, that's not always riding in the clouds or having a weird experience in the shower. That can be a just, this is what makes sense, and I think God's leading me to do this. It can just be based on wisdom that's confirmed by your desire, and the recognition of others. It doesn't have to be supernatural. My hope is that there would be men in the church who are raised up who have this desire because that's a noble task. They desire a noble thing. So that's the criteria. What are the qualifications to be recognized by others? If you desire the work, you desire the office, and you're like, how do I know if I could do it? What should you think about? 
Or if you're thinking right now, like, I wonder who in here could be an elder. That's a good question to ask. What should you look for? And Paul gives 15 qualifications in verse uh, 2 through 7. He gives another six in the book of Titus. We're not going to look at those this morning. Fifteen will suffice for today. First, he says that an overseer must be above reproach. That means just simply they have a good reputation of faith and integrity. They have a good reputation. Second, he says that um, they should be the husband of one wife. Literally, this is a one-woman man. It just means that he's faithful to his wife. Third, says sober-minded. means to not be given to extremism, to be a clear-headed thinker. The fourth, he says, self-controlled. This literally just means of sound mind. It's being able to think reasonably about a situation. Fifth, he says, they should be respectable. This means well-behaved and a life that's well-organized, a life that's in order. Six, he says, hospitable. To be hospitable, hospitable just means to love strangers. It means that they should have an approachability about them. They should be open to others. Seven, he says, they should be able to teach. We've talked about why that's important. And he says they need to be able to teach. They need to have an ability to understand and communicate the Bible and sound doctrine. They need to not be a drunkard. Literally, the phrase is addicted to wine. They do not need to be addicted to wine. So it's a person who's marked by self-control and temperance. He says this person is not violent. The word violent is literally the phrase, not a bully, not someone who picks on others. It's not someone who manipulates or pushes others around. Instead of being violent, they're to be gentle. The word gentle, I love this word. I'm... uh, It means to meet on the appropriate level, to use the appropriate strength. That's what gentle is. It's the difference between picking up a baseball and a contact lens. It's adjusting your strength level. Not quarrelsome. That means they're peaceable. They get along with others. They don't want to fight. Not a lover of money. They need to be able to manage their household. The primary place of leadership is in the home, not the church. So then, as a manager of the household, he needs to, um, what does he say? Uh, Blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. Keeping, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will we care for God's church? The point is, throughout 1 Timothy, is the church is God's house. And so, they need to be able to lead their own house if they're going to try to lead God's house. He says, not a recent convert. Instead, they need to be mature and they need to have their faith tested before they begin to lead. And then the last one, he says, they need to be well thought of by outsiders. Well thought of by outsiders. People who do business with them, people who play sports with their kids, people who hang with them need to think highly of him. So there's 15 qualifications. Now, these are our qualities that all Christians should strive for. These are not like unique qualities, except for maybe being able to teach. It's maybe the one unique thing. But basically, all that other stuff is just like 
good, basic, being a Christian stuff. And the point is that elders are simply people who take their faith seriously. They're simply people who strive to obey Christ. And if we got really nitpicky about every single one of those things, every single person in the world would be disqualified from being an elder. I'm certainly, I I don't even know what it means to manage my house. I just got a house. And so as we look at this list, it should sober us, all of us. It should sober us as Christians who don't live up to this. But then it should also point our eyes and our attention back to the good shepherd who does meet every one of these standards. Jesus is the good shepherd who, who does fulfill all of the requirements that God would have. And he lays down his life so that we can be forgiven for the ways that we fall short. That's what Jesus does as the true elder of the church. So, how are elders chosen? They're called by God. They have a desire for it. And they're recognized by others with these qualifications. Last question. How are elders to be treated? How are elders to be treated? Now, this is the most self-serving of all to talk about, okay? It's super awkward for me to talk about this next part. But look at verse 5, chapter 5, I'm sorry, verse 17. Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. What is the double honor that he's talking about? I think he's referring to the fact that they should have honor, first of all. They should be respected. And they should also receive an honorarium. They should be paid. Um, Then he quotes two scripture. He says, for the scripture says, here's why they should, those who labor in preaching and teaching should be paid. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So this first reference is from Deuteronomy 25.4, Deuteronomy 25.4. And it's in reference to Moses saying that um, if your oxen is helping you on the farm, then you should feed it. It, should, it deserves to eat. Don't muzzle. Muzzle is to put a device over the mouth of the animal so that it can't open its mouth. Don't muzzle an ox who's helping you tread out the grain. If it's doing work, it deserves to eat. And so if an oxen deserves to be able to eat after it's done work, then Paul is saying certainly somebody who's preaching and teaching deserves to be able to eat. And then he also quotes from Luke 10, 7. Jesus is sending out workers in Luke chapter 10 to do ministry. And he says the laborer deserves his wages. Now, quick side note here. It's really interesting that Paul refers to scripture. He says, for the scripture says, and he quotes Luke. That shows that even in the New Testament period, they believed that the New Testament was inspired by God. Um, I think that's really significant. But he's quoting Jesus to say, the labor deserves his wages. Now, again, this is awkward and self-serving for me to talk about, but it's right for the person who is working to preach and teach 
God's word to get paid for what they do. Um, but the caveat to all of that is in order to be qualified to be the person who's doing that, you can't be a lover of money. Because he already said that in 1 Timothy 3. So if there are people who are just trying to take advantage of the church and draw a paycheck, then they're not qualified to be doing it. And they don't need to be doing it. Now, some of that is subjective because you don't know my heart and you don't know anybody's heart. Um, but you can tell over time what their motives are. And so his point is um, that it's okay for the person who's preaching and teaching to be paid. So that's the first thing. Let me say this too, real quick. A healthy church, okay, in a healthy church that really cares for your soul, it's not that every single Sunday you come in and there's this great sermon that just knocks it out of the park and man, it was a home run today and you just feel this like overwhelming energy to go out and, you know, be the best Christian in the history of the universe. That's not the goal of a healthy church. It's not that one great sermon is going to instantly change your life. It's that consistently listening to faithful Bible preaching will. It's that consistently opening up God's word to see what it has to say for you and for your brother and sister next to you. That by consistently sitting under that kind of teaching that it's like a, it's like a seed that's planted that may take years to grow, but it will grow. So that's the first thing he says is they need to be treated with appreciation or with honor. And then they also need to be treated with justice. Verse 19, he says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. His purpose here is that if an accusation is made that you shouldn't admit the charge unless two or three people can verify it. To admit means to accept as true. This does not mean that you don't listen to the accusation. It means that you don't assume that it's true until you've got multiple voices who are saying that. The purpose of this is to protect the elder from false slander, because they, leaders in any capacity are targets for that, and also to protect the church from wasting energy and false despair, because it's a painful thing when you think that a leader has done something wrong. So he's saying, before you assume that something is true, search it out. Find some witnesses. But then verse 21, or verse 20, I'm sorry, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudice, doing nothing from partiality. In other words, as a church, it doesn't matter how much you love the pastor and he's just, he, he baptized me and he de dedicated my son and, you know, he just, he's been there forever. When he's in sin and he won't repent, it's time for him to go. He's to be rebuked in the presence of all. And for too long in the church, we've used verse 20 to defend, I'm sorry, verse 19. We've used verse 19 to defend pastors for all kinds of wrongdoing without taking verse 20 and 21 seriously. So we should give them the benefit of the doubt and we should also be willing to have justice for them. Now, all of that to say, we still have to apply all of the same principles that we would use to confront anybody 
when we confront a pastor. That is humility. That is going to them directly with my concern. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. I go with them directly. I take others and then I bring it before the church or the elders. So we still apply those same principles. So that's a quick overview of elders in the church. Now here's the deal. As we think about that, I do hope that some of you would feel called by God to rise up and be elders. I hope that that's the case. Because God has given elders to shepherd, to protect, to feed, to lead, to love the church. He wants for us to have that, to have shepherds. But here's the deal. Even as I say that about pastors in verse 20 and 21, elders are not perfect, just like you're not perfect. As a church who wants to honor God, we should have elders, but we should also not take our eye off of the elder, Jesus, who gave his life, who died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins and was raised from the dead so that we can have hope after death. We don't need to take our eyes off of the shepherd. This week, there was a pastor in town who was helping us with this merger thing, and he was teaching on all this stuff. And um, I went to lunch with him before our meeting, and um, as we sat down to pray, he just prayed this simple prayer. He said, Father, thank you that Nate and I can sit here at this table as brothers because of our older brother. Because of our older brother. Of course, he's talking about Jesus. And I love that imagery, and that's the same here, that as we think about elders and shepherds, the only reason that we have those, the only reason that we, the only reason that we look to those is because we believe there is a chief shepherd, Jesus. And the goal of a healthy church is to model themselves off of him, 